Hey GearHeads and welcome to GT Garage Talk. I am your host Corey and this week we have a very fun and very interesting and slightly nerdy episode for you. Those of you who have known and followed GT Garage Talk for any length of time know that I spent nearly 12 years as an analyst and numbers are kind of my thing. So today's guest ties my numbers background with my love of cars into like the perfect conversation to where I could have gone on and on and on and on and on about so many different topics. But unfortunately, I couldn't. And our guest this week is the president, the CEO, the owner of Auto Pacific, Ed Kim. And I will let him go into all the details of exactly what Auto Pacific is, what they do. And you, if you know me at all, will start to see the connections of just how geeked I was uh, to get to talk to Ed today. So let's bring him on. I thank Ed Kim for joining us today to talk a little bit of his car history and maybe a little uh, nerdy analytics along the way. Ed, nice to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. This is awesome. So before we just completely jump into the weeds and nerd out on car numbers, facts, and figures, I wanted to get to know you just a little bit. Your current position has changed slightly. Why don't, why don't you give our GearHead listeners just a little <laughs> idea of uh, what it is that you do? Okay, well, um, so again, I'm Ed Kim, and I am now the new president and chief analyst at Auto Pacific. Um, I, uh, came into this position, oh, let's see, 11 days ago, January 1st. So <laughs> it's, uh, so it's been a, uh, it's been a lot of fun, um, you know, trying to, uh, make adjustments and, uh, you know, to the company and, you know, do things a little differently and, you know, just basically plan out what we're going to be doing, uh, for 2022 and beyond. Uh, but basically Auto Pacific is a, is a well-respected automotive market research and consulting firm. Um, it was founded uh, 36 years ago in uh, 1986. Very important year in my life, so <laughs> I had to celebrate hey, just uh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was formed in 1986 uh, by George Peterson, who is uh, who was the president and owner of the company until January 1st. Uh, so it's a it's an incredibly long and storied legacy that I'm taking over from. So I thank him very much for entrusting the uh, company and its reputation and legacy with me. Basically, throughout the years, uh, Auto Pacific has uh, done quite a few different, uh, has had uh, a variety of products and services uh, to mainly help the OEM, the, the automakers, as well as uh, suppliers and even ad agencies to uh, make the best decisions uh, for uh, future products. So, for example, uh, let's, say an, uh, let's say an automaker is developing their next, well, let's say, full-size pickup truck. And... They're in the uh, early planning phases of it. Well, uh, one of the things that an automaker might do at that point is contact an automotive research company like Auto Pacific and uh, do some early consumer research, you know, find out, you know, what it is that consumers want in their next vehicles. You know, what do they want in their next truck? You know, and, and why? You know, why is that important uh, to them? 
that sort of research, I would say, is even more important and relevant now than ever with all the huge changes that are happening in our business right now. Uh, you know, right now we're, we're looking down the barrel of uh, electrification, of uh, autonomous drive features, uh, you know, more and more infotainment technology that's going into vehicles. There's just so much technology-wise that's happening in the automotive space that the sort of choices that consumers are going to be faced with in the coming years is just going to be staggering. And it's important for automakers to understand as they're, you know, as they're going into this brave new world, well, you know, what is it that the consumer is going to want? Ultimately, you know, an automaker can, uh, you know, can come up with all kinds of great uh, ideas and dreams and, and whatnot, but they're going to be useless if they don't meet an actual customer demand. So that's where we come in and, uh, and perform various types of research projects to really help the automakers and suppliers as well, because a lot of the, a lot of the cool ideas that you see in cars today actually came from the supplier side, where the supplier actually you know, pitches an idea, hey, we've got this cool interior functionality idea that we've designed for pickup trucks, and you know, they'll, you know, they'll pitch that idea you know, to, uh, to the automakers. So uh, a lot of those innovations you see you know, come from uh, you know, both the automakers as well as the supplier side. So we really do work with both uh, in helping, in helping uh, both automakers and suppliers to uh, develop products and ideas that meet an actual customer demand. Wow. Um, so it's it's a ton of it's a ton of fun. It's super interesting, uh, you know, for a you know for a car nerd, you know, lifelong car nerd like myself. I mean, or or yourself, you know, what could possibly be more fun than helping an automaker determine, uh, you know, what the future. they should, yeah, what they should build in the future based on what consumers are saying that they, you know, what consumers are reporting as what you know some of their unmet needs or things that they'd want to see in their next vehicle and and all that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, it's kind of a car nerd's dream. Now, the other side of auto... <laughs> so other... you, you and yeah, I automatic. spoke leading up to this interview. I, I spent 12 years in analytics on the grocery retail side. Yeah, so being right. able to combine what I did for 12 years and my love of automobiles, it, <laughs> like you, you're speaking my language wholeheartedly. I'm like, oh my gosh, that just sounds so awesome. So that's great. But sorry, I cut you off. What is... Oh, no, no. Um, so now, so that's, that's half of, that's uh, one half of, uh, uh, auto Pacific's business. The other side of auto Pacific is uh, what we call industry analysis. And that's actually the side of the company that, that I was in charge of until, um, until January 1st, where then I became in charge of everything. But, uh, the industry analysis side, uh, what we basically our, our main, the main two functions that we have there are competitive intelligence. So basically that's where. Uh, me and uh, me and uh, our team of industry analysts are, uh, you know, looking out into the future and trying to figure out what's going to happen with every single new vehicle that's sold in the marketplace. We have a web portal called eautopacific.com that that's basically, you know, how you interface with all this data. And basically, what we provide in there uh, is all the intel we have on future brands, future segments, future vehicles. You know, if you want to, you know, if you're an automotive product planner working. Uh, you know, for a company X and you want to find out what, you know, what your nearest competitor is doing in the future on their competitive vehicle, our competitive intelligence tool will uh, show them everything that we know about the next, you know, whatever this vehicle is, you know, the next Honda Accord or the next, uh, you know, Toyota RAV4, you know, so basically me and my team and I, we, we spent a lot of our time uh, chasing down Intel, uh, some of that Intel, you know, comes from stuff we read on the internet, of course. But you know, a lot of it is uh, a lot of it also is uh, 
talking to automakers, talking to suppliers. Uh, you know, we've built up a pretty strong uh, intelligence network, and uh, you know that helps us. You know, sort of uh, hypothesize about what we think is going to happen to you know happen with every mo- every vehicle nameplate that's sold here in the U.S. market. The other side of what the industry analysis part of Auto Pacific does is uh, sales forecasting. So, uh, you know, automakers, uh, you know, in planning uh, for, you know, how many of vehicle X that they should build, you know, how, you know, what kind of demand is out there for, you know, this vehicle that's in this segment and understanding what, uh, what kind of volumes uh, their competitors might do. Well, that sales forecast really helps them out there. You know, they can see, you know, where we're predicting the market, uh, market size to be, both for the overall market, the overall U.S. market, as well as uh, individual brands, uh, all the way down to uh, the individual vehicles and their, uh, if applicable, alternative powertrains. You know, electric, plug-in, hybrid, hydrogen, all that sort of stuff. You know, because that's a, that's a big thing on automakers' minds these days. So we we do we do have this. Uh, you know, what I what I'd like to think is a very very good and accurate forecast. So you know that that ties it very closely with our competitive intelligence. In turn, our forecast is also informed, uh, informed partly by the data that the data that we do, the, the data that we get uh, from uh, new vehicle buyers. You know, one, you know, one of uh, our longtime products on the market research side is our annual new vehicle satisfaction study. And with that, you know, we, you know, we send a, we send questionnaires to new vehicle owners, and uh, you know, they tell us uh, you know what they like and don't like, and you know what they'd like to see in the future, and all that. Uh, in survey form, that data generates very, very useful insights as to you know what people are thinking about you know what people in you know various vehicle segments might be thinking about you know what brands they'll consider in the future, what segments they'll consider in the future, and all that sort of stuff. And that that directly informs our forecast, which I think is a unique advantage that we have over some other forecasters that don't that interface uh, with the consumer as directly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, that's basically what we do uh, at auto Pacific. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, you, for a car, for a car guy, totally, totally geeky fun. <laughs> yes. You've probably had a very interesting last couple of years on your old desk and the forecasting and, and all of that with chip shortages and oh plant closures. Gosh, yes. <laughs> I'm sure you're absolutely tired of talking about chips, right? Well, no, I'm not tired about I'm not tired about talking about chips just because it's it's like one of the big it's like one of the hugest uh, you know foremost issues in uh, in our business right now. I mean, you know, if it wasn't for this chip shortage, uh, the industry would be selling a lot more vehicles because the natural demand right now uh, for uh, new vehicles is a lot higher than what the supply is, and the reason that supply is so low is because there's no chips. So. You know, it's the, this last couple of years has uh, you know just really highlighted just uh, you know how how much a uh, disruption in the supply chain can completely screw up an industry. Basically, uh, you know, send everyone scrambling and trying to figure out you know ah what are we going to do now? We've got consumers that you know want to buy our cars, but we don't have the parts to you know build these cars. Right. You know, it's it's leading a lot of automakers to um, you know real you know really rethink. Uh, their own supply chains to prevent things like this from happening again in the future, because you know the automakers have lost out on a lot of revenue over the last couple of years due to uh, due to the chip shortage, which ultimately you know traces back to the back to the whole pandemic. So you know really you know since uh, 2020, this is uh, supply chain issues uh, you know have give the given the industry a lot to think about. 
especially in the context of preventing it from happening again in the way that it has. You've even got legacy brands rethinking their go-to-market strategy. So Ford has been rumored of talking about leaning a little more heavily into this Tesla style build to order kind of system, which would be a total disruptor. But for me on the review slash test drive side of things, I'm like, you know, this could be good because People will be more dependent on reviews and the internet research. So I'm like, hmm, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we've, we've, we've been, we've been, you know, through, uh, through our surveys, you know, we've been tracking uh, for years, you know, how consumers get their information uh, when they're shopping for vehicles. And um, over the last, uh, you know, decade, especially, the degree to which consumers really rely on on all the various internet resources out there, including review sites, uh, including people like you, you know, help them, uh, you know, narrow down and decide what they're going to buy. The the role of outlets like like yours have uh, become far, far, far more uh, prevalent and important to consumers. So, in that sense, uh, you're doing a great service and uh, keep it up. <laughs> I'm only out there to help. So I did promise that this wouldn't be uh, very heavy on analytics or, you know, begging you for details or scoops on on what it is that you do. I wanted to pivot and kind of stay true to our form and find out a little more what makes you tick. How did you end up the president of Auto Pacific? What, What got you down the road of the automotive industry? Well, I guess... Without making this too long and lengthy, I'll, you know the, the Cliff Notes version basically starts uh, with me as a small child, you know, as is the case for uh, you know so many of us in our in our industry. It started me off. You you start out as a as a car as a as a childhood car geek, and that's what I was. My parents love to tell the story about how I my motivation to learn to read was this giant coffee table book that they had in the living room. Uh, that was um, the uh, it was a it was a book that was about this thick. It was it was massive, and it was this basically huge almanac of every vehicle sold in the entire world. I mean, I don't even know if we have a resource like that today. You know, like one book where I mean, literally, you could see everything that was on sale in Turkey or Sudan, or you know, it was just it was it was incredible how uh, comprehensive this book was. Again, I don't even know that there's a resource on the internet today that can you know get you all that in one Wikipedia, place. Wikipedia, maybe. <laughs> Wikipedia maybe, but it's not fact-checked in the way that this book was. Right. The, the, the thing about the book was uh, there were a bunch of uh, articles in the front of the book, and I and uh, years and years later, I went back and you know read some of them and realized the write-ups were written by iconic uh, auto writers of that era. The, this book had some credibility in the sense that uh, you know it was really first-tier auto writers of that you know of that time period that uh, you know contributed to it. But but I digress. My motivation for learning to read. As my parents love uh, like to say, like to tell it, uh, was that I wanted to know everything about every single car in that book, and that was my that was my motivation to learn to read. So, not long after that, you know, I'd be this, you know, I'd be you know the little kid in the backseat, you know, naming every car, you know, that that we drive by, and uh, you know, it got to the point where you know I was kind. Of, you know, for my, you know, for like a five-year-old, I knew more than most five-year-olds about, you know, what that car was and that car was and all that. My Matchbox and Hot Wheels collection was, you know, epic and, you know, all all that stuff. That love of cars never left. Now in high high school, um, I had, uh, 
I had dreams of being a car designer, but for a variety of reasons that I won't get into right now, I ended up deciding to decide to sort of follow in many of my family members' footsteps and go into psychology. So I basically, so I graduated from from college as a psych major, and went to work as uh, as a counselor in a uh, at a boys uh, a teenage boys group home. So I did that for a while. Totally not automotive, of course. In the meantime, though, in the background. But what I was doing outside of work was wrenching away on my car, uh, you know, going to uh, SCCA Solo 2 autocrosses on weekends and, uh, you know, testing out my latest uh, chassis enhancements, you know, on the on the course and all that. Uh, so, you know, while I had my nine to five, my passions were clearly elsewhere. After a couple of years doing what I was doing at work, uh, I decided, uh, you know, that's it's important work that I'm doing um, here, but this isn't where my passion lies. And uh, I, I got to follow my heart. So I quit that job just to get me into a job, into an environment where there were a lot of cars around. I ended up working for Hertz Rent-A-Car. And because uh, <laughs> I was like, well, there's like, there's like no shortage of cars here. And, uh, you know, um, in that, in that role, I'll get to, you know, drive, you know, drive these cars around. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get to drive like all the new cars. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, I don't really know my path into the auto, auto industry yet, but that's this is where I'm going to start. Eventually, through a lot of luck and generosity of, uh, of, of mentors, I found my way to Auto Pacific. It was just one of those things uh, where the timing kind of lined up. Everything was, uh, uh, you know, the stars were aligned for me to, uh, you know, get a position there. And, um, you know, I was I was hired without... You know, I had no formal auto industry experience, just a lot of, you know, armchair car guy, you know, knowledge and passion. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can't teach the passion. You can teach all the other skills, but you can't Absolutely. teach the passion. Yeah. And I, and I think that's what George Peterson, the founder of the company, saw in me when, uh, when, when I was hired. Obviously, I was inexperienced, but uh, I had the passion. And um, he... Uh, this was back in 98. So he uh, took me under his wing. I was uh, very, very, the, the thing that I will all, one of the things I'll be so eternally grateful to him for is the fact that, you know, he just, he immediately just kind of threw me to the wolves and uh, he put huge responsibilities on, on me where, you know, that I was like, gosh, I can't believe he's trusting me to do this. I just started, I'm, you know, but uh, that's how, that's how I learned. And, uh, that's how I learned about automotive market research, you know, just basically getting thrown right into the middle of a project and, you know, given important roles in these projects, even though I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. But, you know, I, I'm sure you, I'm sure you found in your life, too. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes the best way to learn to, to jump learn in the skill, deep end, <laughs> jump in the deep end, just just go, you know, just go all in. I'm very fortunate that George, you know, trusted me enough to throw me in the deep end and just have me sort it out. You know, I, I had a tremendous time. I did so. So I've been at the company since '98, uh, but I did have uh, one detour. I left in 2004 to work in product planning at Hyundai. Okay. So cool. uh, I did that. I did that for four years. Um, I was in their advanced product development area, which which I thought was the most fun area of product planning. That's the uh, area where uh, you know our team would uh, you know try to identify white spaces in the market. You know. There's this customer type who's really not being served by, you know, well served by the mark by the vehicles in market. You know, how do we develop a, you know, what kind of a car do we need to develop in that segment that would really speak to this type of buyers, under, you know, this uh, this type of buyers' uh, unmet needs. 
you know, we came up with all kinds of, you know, really fun and cool product ideas, some of which actually did make it into production. I'm definitely uh, proud of the fact that our team had a, had a big role in uh, what the, what became the 2011 Hyundai Sonata. That was really arguably the car that got Hyundai out of like the second tier yeah. budget car place that it, had, that it had been since it launched, you know, into the, up to the next level where it was being compared favorably against, you know, Camrys and Accords and all that. It was a and, huge statement for the brand. It was. I mean, at that time, I mean, there was not another midsize sedan that looked like that. I, I remember the first time I got one as a press car. I'll never forget this. I uh, I had to run a I had to run a quick errand. Errand uh, went to Target, pulled into a Target parking lot, went in, uh, came back out to the car, and there was a flyer under the windshield for uh, from some local uh, Mercedes service center. Apparently, someone put this flyer under the car, thinking that the car was a Mercedes. <laughs> and uh, so when I saw, it, I looked at the other cars in the lot. I was like, okay, did this did did someone just you know stick Canvas. this flyer in? all the wiper, you know, under all the windshield wipers. No, it was just the Mercedes cars in the parking lot plus the Hyundai Sonata. So, <laughs> and I was like, wow, you know, if that doesn't demonstrate right there just how radically new and different and impressive this new Sonata is, I don't know what is. Anyway, so, so you know, our team, you know, our team definitely had a big hand in that product. And uh, it was, it was a ton of fun to, um, you know, not just, uh, you know, not just do the research on consumers, but also then, you know, help develop the car, you know, to meet uh, that consumer's need. And so it was a ton of fun. I returned to Auto Pacific back in 2008 as uh, George reached out to me and uh, said, uh, hey, gotta you have know, you back. Would love to have you back and uh, and lead our industry analysis area. So that's what I did all the way up, in, up from that point up until uh, January first, when uh, um, when the keys were handed over to me, and uh, now I'm in charge of the company. But I do want to say though that despite all that, I remain first and foremost a car guy and a car analyst first. I mean, you know, yes, I'm now running the day to day operations of the business, but first and foremost, I'm an analyst first. You know, I'm a car guy first. That's uh, that's where my passions are and always will be. What was it like kind of getting to see industry from both sides? Because the team you work for at Hyundai is essentially who you work worked with coming back to Auto Pacific, correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, so I've, I, I've got a very long history of Hyundai on both sides because uh, Hyundai is a longtime uh, client of Auto Pacific's. You know, we were working with Hyundai even back, uh, you know, when I first started with the company in 98. You know, I've, I've definitely I've definitely been on both sides. I think uh, I think, uh, it, you know, for 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 both roles, being at Hyundai and being at Auto Pacific, the experience of being on the other side um, has been tremendously valuable. Uh, it wasn't until I went to Hyundai that I really understood, you know, what it is that product planners really need and what sort of tools they really need. And so when I came back to Auto Pacific, I was able to adjust a lot of our product offerings to to meet the needs of the client better because uh, now I have that experience of actually being a product planner and I knew the sort of tools I needed and you know some of the things uh, you know that I wish existed and I was like and so coming back to Auto Pacific it's like okay hey you know as a uh, you know as you know as someone who was just a product planner we should do this because right. you know product planners are underserved in this area on the other end of it uh, having the market research and analyst background before I went to Hyundai was, um, you know, tremendously valuable as a product planner because, uh, 
you know, I understood how research worked. I really understood research design. You know, I really understood, you know, how to design and develop research that would, you know, that would help answer the questions that we were trying to answer. So, yeah, I, I think being on both sides, on both the OEM side and the uh, market research and consulting side uh, have been tremendously valuable. What would you say is a little bit of an Ed Kim stamp on the automotive landscape outside of that Sonata that you can say, you can look at and just say, I helped with that. Or I, I, I helped pave the way for X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess I would say the vehicle that probably has the most number of my fingerprints on it would be the second generation uh, Tucson. The second generation, if you recall, the first generation Tucson was sort of this, uh, you know, it was it was sort of a, uh, a more upright, kind of a blocky SUV sort of a look. Ironically, I think that look would actually sort of work, you know, well today because everyone now, now today, everyone it's wants, desirable. You, know, you know, more rugged looking SUVs. But at that time, SUVs were really kind of starting to transform and morph into uh, sleeker uh, designs, uh, more aerodynamic designs. And so that second generation Tucson was at that time really trying to answer that consumer need at the time for, uh, you know, more sporty, a more on-road oriented look for a crossover SUV. We, uh, we, we sort of had this internal competition at Hyundai where a few, team, a few teams were formed and we did all this work and research to each come up with a product concept, an idea uh, that, uh, you know, one would get chosen and move forward and ultimately become the production car. So the team I led, uh, we came up with what we nicknamed Urban Cruiser. It was sort of a, it, it was a, it was an idea for an SUV that was a lot more sleek. That's why we called it urban. You know, it's, it's not off-road, but it's more of a city car. Uh, you know, everything from the exterior styling to the interior and, and a lot of the feature content that went into it directly came from, from the early concept work that my team and I um, had developed. So, yeah, I would say that that one in particular, because it was because because it was uh, uh, me and my team's concept that was chosen to move forward. I would say, yeah, that one is probably the one that has the most uh, Edkin fingerprints on it. So I have to ask, and, and you might cringe when I do this, but listening to you <laughs> describe the process reminds me so much of the much maligned Pontiac Aztec. It is ah. well documented now that within General Motors, the Aztec checked all the boxes. It was ahead of schedule. It met all the criteria. <laughs> it was a slam dunk internally that when released to the public, just went over like a lead balloon. What yes. are your thoughts and opinions, given your unique background in both the consumer research side and the automotive planning side what what are your thoughts on the much maligned Pontiac Aztec oh I yes I have opinions on that for sure especially coming from especially coming from my background so yes it's true the car the car researched well the idea researched well and if you, if you think about what if you think about the product I the concept behind that idea you know, it was for a very roomy, very package focused, right. super uh, expressive yet multifunctional practical vehicle. And, you know, if you think about that idea, I mean, that's really what, you know, crossovers have evolved into. I mean, yeah. 
they're they're multifunctional. They're 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 stylish. They have uh, you know the the the, the better ones have uh, you know you know great attitude and style and all that. The problem what what went wrong with Aztec wasn't the basic idea of the car because yes it did it actually did perform very well in research and and uh, GM's research at the time definitively proved yes there is a there is absolutely a market for this type of vehicle. The problem was the General Motors at that time was much it was a very different GM than now. It was a time when uh, the bean counters basically ruled the company. And what basically happened was, uh, you know, they, 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 they took this, you know, very well-researched and, and very legitimate idea. And then the bean counters uh, basically ordered it to be built on the platform of the GMU van of the time. So it used the, it used the GMU van. And for those of you who don't know, the U van being the uh, Chevrolet, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Pontiac Transport, uh, you know, uh, Buick, Buick Ranger, or no, the, the yeah, it, it was, uh, they had uh, the something Terraza. Terraza, yes, thank yes. you, thank you, Terraza. So, you know, the, the, the bean counters insisted that this very cool concept and idea be built on the bones of uh, the GM minivan of the time. So the proportions were all wrong. It had these little tiny minivan tire, tires and wheels, you know, on this big bloated body. You know, the cowl height was defined by where it was in the minivan product. The overhangs were defined by the platform, by that minivan platform. And basically they took this, they took this really sound idea and applied it onto really unsuitable hardware that completely destroyed the car's proportions and made it look stupid. And that's why the car, so, you know, performed like a lead balloon in the marketplace. I would say that perhaps the biggest proof that the idea itself wasn't, you know, that the idea itself was a solid one was the uh, success of the Honda Element. I mean, it's a very similar idea, um, you know, maybe on a little bit of a smaller package, but the idea was was fundamentally similar. It was a, it's a unibody crossover with, uh, you know, funky and... Uh, you know, unique styling and a super multifunctional interior meant for getting dirty and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that that was the idea behind behind Aztec too, um, but uh, but in, but in Honda's case, that element was distantly related to the Civic and CRV of the time. Yet it looked nothing like it. It didn't it didn't have the hard points of a of a Civic or CRV. You know, Honda went and you know accepted the expense of you know, making bigger changes to that platform to keep the product truer to the basic idea that the planners had come up with in the first place. So what's the yeah. phrase? So you got to spend money to make money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yes. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you do. Sometimes you do. Honda spent the money, uh, you know, the, the GM bean counters, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, did not. And hence we got the Aztec. That's a unique comparison, too, because both historically had a lot of black exterior cladding, which many cited was the downfall of the Aztec. It just lent to the funky styling. Yet, to your point, the element did so well. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, you know, that had just as much black plastic cladding as the Aztec. It, it Maybe more even. But, uh, you know, it was it was it was done. It was done in a way that, you know, made it look, you know, kind of cool and rugged in the on the aztec um I, personally i you know i i think the basic hard points and proportions of the car uh, of the aztec made it such that you know there was there was no fixing it i mean no amount of cladding you know or styling details were going to fix what was fundamentally wrong with the proportions right. so 
<laughs> yeah, I remember the first concept drawings of it, and it was much sleeker, much more rugged, youthful, just a, a totally different vehicle than what we got. And yeah, yeah, like you said, it, it all comes down to the minivan bones of it. It just right. <laughs> Right. I, I remember I remember some of those earlier drawings, too. In fact, uh, yeah, a couple of years before the production Aztec came out, uh, GM or Pontiac did uh, put out a concept car, an Aztec concept car that, you know, showed the basic idea. And, uh, you know, that concept had, you know, much bigger wheels and tires. Uh, you know, it wasn't constrained by those minivan proportions. That original Aztec concept, you know, shows you what the designers and product planners had in mind. And then, you know, once it got once it got, uh, you know, you know, adapted to those minivan bones, it all went to trash. So, <laughs> you know, many, many people in my industry joke about, you know, yeah, you can show us concepts all you want, but if you can't deliver on those concepts, what good is it? And right. GM right. of the era, era was especially guilty, but then coming out of bankruptcy and reformation, I remember as a huge Camaro fan, seeing mm -hmm. the Camaro concept and I was like, please, please, please make it just like that. And yeah, they did. It was they very did. true to form and so much so that I went out and bought a 2012. So, uh, right. yes, I, I, I see how far GM has come and that's why I kind of leaned back into my love of the brand. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you know, I, I think the case can really be made that, you know, the bankruptcy in the end was really good for GM. I mean, it really ushered in a some huge culture changes at the company that resulted in just vastly improved product. I mean, you know, the products that, you know, the post-bankruptcy products from GM are so different from right. the pre-bankruptcy products in terms of both, in terms of, uh, you know, quality and execution and, uh, you know, even proportions. I mean, you know, GM used to be the king of, uh, you know, adapting, uh, you know, various vehicles to uh, pretty uninspiring platforms. Uh, you know, there was this, there was a time, like particularly in the 90s, I remember, you know, GM front wheel drive vehicles always had these massively long overhangs, like way more, for some reason, even more so than uh, other competitive vehicles. They would have these super long schnozzes and, uh, you know, kind of ungainly proportions. And, um, you know, Aztec, of course, was the biggest, arguably the biggest offender, but, you remember uh, the Oldsmobile Aurora? I do remember the oh. Oldsmobile Aurora. And and even, I believe it shared a platform with Buick Riviera. Both of those were it very did. long, large, to your point, overhangs. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Funky. You, you could see where they were going with it. You could. It just you could. didn't Especially translate. With the Riviera. Like, like with the Riviera, it's like, that. that's one of the designs that kind of came close. To being really good, but uh, you know, again, I think uh, platform constraints, uh, you know, were a factor in uh, final product. Yeah, in the final product. So, <laughs> all right, one last question before we dig into our random misfire questions clo to close right. it out. I, I I can't help myself. Uh, we've we've drifted into GM territory, and we are <laughs> as we sit down to record this on the 11th of January on the heels of a massive announcement from General Motors with a tease of more to come in the EV market. So we have gotten Silverado EV pictures, yep. videos, specs, and we're teased with Equinox EV, which is actually going to come out before, and even right. Blazer EV. So from your vantage point, 
without spilling any, you know, trade secrets or anything, you know, what are your thoughts on this current direction of EV focus for the General Motors brand? Well, it is, it, it, this goes, this goes back to the, uh, you know, old GM versus new GM uh, discussion where the, and it, and it really, and it really shows the cultural change at GM. I mean, prior to the bankruptcy, I mean, GM was, you know, GM was uh, uh, in many ways, you know, kind of perceived to be, you know, fighting the future, you know, EVs don't make money. We're not going to do that. All this sort of stuff. Um, GM EV1. Like. Yeah. E- e- even though they were pioneers, really. I mean, you know, the EV1 was the first, uh, you know, the first, you know, sort of mass produced EV. You know, it, it, it definitely had its fans. I mean, it was a niche car, but it, it definitely had its fans and it got a lot of visibility. The GM of the past was really focused on, uh, I, I would say the, the biggest difference is GM of the past was very focused on short term you know, short-term profitability, short-term gains, you know, they, it, it often seemed like they really couldn't look past the next quarter, the, the next quarter. GM today is, is very different. I mean, you know, I, you know almost to, to their detriment because it seems like their current product offerings are being neglected in, in the it, vein of the future. Yeah. There, there's definitely a transition happening, but, but I think what's really striking here overall though, is that we've got, you know, we've, we've gone from GM thinking very short-term focused to now GM, you know, being all, you know, all about long range thinking. I mean, in my career, GM has, you know, until recently I've, you know, I I went through most of my life, never thinking of GM as a particularly forward thinking company where they're, you know, really looking out into the future and, you know, trying to figure out how GM and its brands fit into this future landscape. But that's what GM is doing now. I mean, they are, you know, they, they are truly, you know, focused on an electric future and, uh, you know, yeah, in, in some ways, in some ways, you know, I, I think there are legitimate, there could be legitimate arguments made that, you know, maybe they're moving a little too quickly, but, uh, uh, but, but at the same time, fortune has often favored those who make bold decisions and, uh, bold investments like that. So, well, you know, I think it's obviously way too early to, uh, you know, predict, you know, GM's, uh, you know, long-term success, um, in the uh, in the EV field, but the fact that they're so you know invested into it, so boldly saying this is where we're going. Um, I mean, it's it's surprising, uh, in some ways shocking, no pun intended, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but just absolutely fascinating. And uh, you know, it's you know from an analyst perspective, I mean, they're one of the most interesting companies to watch right now yeah. because uh, you know you know for such a huge company to to, um, you know, embrace uh, electrification in the way that they have, you know, it's it's pretty striking. So we'll see how it all turns out. I, I could keep talking to you for hours on end, but I want to be respectful of your time. I know you've got work to get back to. So we will close out today's episode with a little segment we call Random Misfire. It's okay. eight questions. They're super fun. They're this or that or your preference. And just help us get to know you a little bit better and, and dive into that brain of yours as we talk about cars. So I've got a long list that I'm actually going to have to do my best to find the eight <laughs> most interesting questions. I'll, I'll start with my favorite. It's my go-to. Do you name your vehicles? I'm sorry. Do I what? Do you name your vehicles? Do I name my vehicles? Interesting question. I I used to, but I don't 
No, I guess our current two cars, we don't have names for them. Um, you know, what one of the one of the cars is a 2020 Subaru Outback. Uh, love the car, but mm -hmm. don't have a name for it. The other uh, the other car, uh, which is um, which is actually my daily driver, is a 1983 Mercedes uh, 300D. Oh, and that car uh, needs a name. That car needs a name bad. It it needs a name. You know, a a, a good proper German name. Uh, you know, a good you know Swabian name. You yes. know, preferably. But um, no, I have not named the car, which is weird because I've had the car for you know over three years. I love the car. I drive it daily. But uh, so no, I don't have names for my cars. <laughs> I'm sure that Benz has quite a bit of personality to it as well. It does. It does. Maybe I, maybe maybe I just haven't found the right name befitting uh, that car's uh, you know 38 years driving on uh, on the roads. Yeah. All right, so I see your classic GTI shirt. <laughs> what car, I'm going to tweak this question a little bit. What car would you say has been most influential in your life? <laughs> well, it's, uh, it is, uh, um, it would definitely, be, I would definitely say the Volkswagen Golf. And it's funny that I'm, that I have to be wearing this shirt, but I would, I would have, I would have to actually say definitely Volkswagen Golf. So I told you this. I told the story of uh, you know when I was a little kid and uh, you know you know obsessed with cars, but as a four or five year old kid, for some reason, my the car that I just loved so much was the Volkswagen was the Volkswagen Rabbit. Now the word for rabbit in Korean is Toki. So I would always yell at my parents, "Look, look, it's a Volkswagen Toki, a Volkswagen Toki." I, I think it was because the 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 logo of the first gen Rabbit. Uh, you know, there was the word rabbit, but there was a little, there was a little picture of a, of a running rabbit, you know, like next to the words. And, um, you know, so I caught it the Volkswagen Toki. Anyways, I, for some, for some reason, uh, I was obsessed with, I was obsessed with the rabbit slash golf as a kid. I remember uh, going to the LA auto show as a kid and uh, my parents would just leave me in the Volkswagen stand while, you know, while they'd go look at the other cars. Uh, because I really didn't want to see anything else. I just wanted to sit in that rabbit and uh, imagine that it was ours. God, I remember, you know, trying to convince my parents, we should get a rabbit. We should get a rabbit. I, I don't know why I liked the thing so much, but uh, I was obsessed with it. Anyways, uh, you know, then as an adult, I've owned, you know, I've owned, uh, you know, multiple varieties of golf and golf derivatives, namely the Jetta. So, you know, the, the, the number of golfs and Jettas I've had throughout the years um, is high. It's significant. I, I guess, uh, you know, I've, as an adult, the thing I've always appreciated about golfs is, um, is that, you know, they really do possess a very, they, they've traditionally driven like a much higher end car than their price point would suggest. Um, you know, everything from the way that the chassis is tuned, um, the steering is tuned, uh, you know, especially the uh, interior materials and finishes and all that sort of stuff, the, the paint quality. It all, it, it all, you know, for, you know, most generations of golf have been kind of elevated above, you know, the competing Corollas and Civics and whatnot in those areas. And, um, you know, I think, I think I always, just, as an adult, that's one of my favorite things about those cars. But, uh, yeah, that childhood love of the golf and it's and all of its various cousins, uh, you know, that's been kind of a lifetime thing for me. All right, very iconic car in its own right, and uh, <laughs> has had its share of 
outstanding styling to bland but uh yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's gone it's it's gone in many ways i do have to ask i've, I've got to turn this question back on you though what what is your most influential car Chevy Camaro. Uh, without okay. it, I would not even love cars. We moved to East Texas area when I was nine. And uh-huh. uh, w- while waiting on our apartment or our house to finish being built, we lived in an apartment complex and a 96 or 97. I'm ashamed to not know the exact year because they're very differentiable uh, on the outside. But a 96 or 97 Camaro was parked outside of our apartment every day and i just i had to know more about it i asked my mom about it we went and got it's a big hardback book about like this i still have it to Uh this day about everything camaro from 1967 and beyond and uh yeah very cool very cool actually uh one of uh one of our analysts uh robbie DeGraff, he has a third gen camaro his, I think, is a 01 or an 02, so it's a, a later a later model of that generation that you saw in your uh, apartment parking lot. Yep. And, uh, yeah, cool car. Yeah, to the point where my first vehicle, I really wanted a 91 or a 92, uh, very boxy, but Z28 of the... Uh, oh, yeah, well, it's I, an icon. Yes. <laughs> All right, speaking of that, uh, especially given your two vehicles in your garage now, do you favor new or classic? Well, because cars are just so daggum good now. They, they, they are. They, they are. I guess for me, I'm inclined to go classic, and the reason is, you know, you know, as with you, you know, working in the business that we do, you know, we, you know, we do get access access to test cars. You know, we do drive the latest and greatest vehicles and and all that. So in that sense, I kind of get my fill of, uh, you know what's the latest and greatest, uh, you know, just through the cars that, uh, people like you and me are able to test. Um, so for, you know, for what I choose to drive personally, maybe it's also a function of me getting older too. It's funny when I was, you know, when I was younger, I'd always kind of notice, yeah, old people like classic cars. Well, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm that guy now. (laughs) So, so, you know, sign of good taste. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I've, I've, um, Ever since I was a kid, I always loved that generation of, of Mercedes. Of Mercedes. It, was, it was the uh, W123, as it's known among, you know, inside, within, inside, within Mercedes and among, you know, Mercedes geeks. Oftentimes, uh, that car is such an enjoyable antidote to all the technology and modernity of, you know, cars today, which, of course, I love and appreciate. But sometimes it's just, it's just kind of great to, you know, leave all that tech behind and get into something that's so completely analog like that Benz, you know, that car is so analog that if there were a, an EMP, you know, electromagnetic, electromagnetic pulse that, you know, that, that wiped out all the electronics um, in the local area, that thing would keep running because, um, you know, it's a, it's an old school diesel. It doesn't need a spark to keep running. Uh, You know, it'll just kind of run indefinitely as long as, uh, you know, as long as, uh, you know, the fuel's there. So, but in any case, I digress. It's, uh, for me personally, classic. Okay. Transitions very well uh, into what do you feel is the most exciting car either in the market today or at least reveal with an expected delivery date? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question because there are so many new and interesting vehicles 
that are coming out in the next uh, in the next couple of years. I mean, you know, just looking at you know just looking at what GM had a, you know was showing virtually at CES. I mean, you know, it's a perfect example of you know some of the new and exciting stuff that's coming. I mean, you know, an, uh, a fully electric Silverado with over 600 horsepower and uh, you know that's neat and, oh, um, 400 that's, miles of range like that is the yeah, magic number for me that i'm like yeah. all right uh you have my attention <laughs> yeah I, I mean gosh i mean there's there's so much cool stuff like that but let's see i so i'm not i'm not going to give a specific instead of giving you a specific vehicle i'm going to kind of give a genre that genre being evs from the various startups that are that are popping up. I think one of the most uh, interesting things happening in our industry right now is the fact that there are so many new players coming in all at once. I mean, the auto industry uh, for a long time has been considered a very mature, very mature industry with very established players. I mean, you know, GM, Ford, Toyota, and so on. I mean, they've been around forever, and they're they're going to be around forever. And um, <laughs> right, but uh, but with these startups coming in, I mean. They're sort of emboldened by the success last decade of Tesla. You know, Tesla's success last decade basically, you know, paved the um, way, paved the way for others to uh, come in and you know try you know try their hand at it too. Tesla proved that you know a, a completely new and unknown brand can indeed come into the U.S. marketplace and make some huge waves successfully. So you know now we've got all these startups that um, that that are attempting similar success i guarantee you that not all of them will make it you know there there's you know there there are too many of these startups to uh too many of these ev startups to support what i think ev demand will be in the coming years but at the same time i mean you know gosh it is exciting to see all this all this new blood coming in it's like it's like canoe who's that fisker wow uh you, you know so it's interesting it? that you bring up canoe because that is the one i was most excited to see in person at the la auto show yeah uh, they're, yeah they're just so out there it, it, it's, it's a bean <laughs> it looks yeah. like the toyota previa but cool <laughs> yeah yeah that you know i think I, I think what's really neat about the canoe is that having an electric powertrain allows allows for completely di different proportions in, in a car. You know, you don't have to package an engine and a fuel tank and a drive shaft and all these other things that, that ICE uh, powered vehicles all have to have. So that allows the designer uh, considerable freedom to, you know, do something completely wacky and wild and different, you know, up, you know, to date, almost, you know, virtually all the EVs that we've seen in the marketplace still look like traditional gasoline cars. I mean, even a Tesla, you know, these are vehicles coming from an, you know, from an exclusively EV brand. But if you didn't know that it was an EV and if you didn't know, you know, if you were unaware of the Tesla brand, there's nothing about the way that a Tesla looks that that tells you, oh, this is not powered by a gasoline engine. I mean, it still looks like a they still look like traditional vehicles. Everything coming from GM and, you know, Ford and, you know, Hyundai and Kia, you know, these all a lot of neat vehicles, but they still do look like familiar vehicles. They have familiar shapes. The canoe is just wild. I mean, it's just <laughs> just throws all that out the window, and uh, you know they've designed a vehicle that completely takes advantage of the fact that it's an EV um, and doesn't have to package all this stuff that a traditional car has to package. So, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm excited about that one too. It's uh, very very neat, very interesting. So yeah. All right, we'll kind of go into a, a lightning round here. Do you right. prefer on your vehicles color or grayscale? Uh, color. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yep, yep. 
definitely color. I, you know, I, I think it's, I think that the color palette on modern cars is pretty boring. I mean, that it makes me really happy when I see Ford do a grabber blue or, uh, you know, it's like, you know, yes, here's some color, you know, I, I love it. Even the little uh, trailblazer in that teal color. that Chevy's Yeah. Out. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's just like, you know, we've, we've spent, you know, cars are getting more and more expensive. If I've plunked down all this money on a car, I mean, you know, why wouldn't I, you know, at least for me, you know, why wouldn't I want some cool color on it rather than, you know, just some silver or beige and just have it blend out, blend into the parking lot, you know, where I'm never going to find it after I come back, come out of the store. Um, yeah. Color by, you know, all the way. Do you hand wash your vehicles or take them through a drive through Both. The Subaru goes to the drive through the Benz gets hand washed. <laughs> I approve. I approve. Uh, let's see here. Favorite road trip snack? Ooh, that's a that's a good one because uh, our family uh, we spend a lot of time on the road. We're 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 big road trippers, uh, which means yes, roads you know road snacks are a thing. So because because it's so frequently a thing, now I gotta now I gotta figure out how to narrow it down. I, I guess if if I'm gonna have to narrow it down to one thing, I'm probably gonna have to say gummy bears. But very specifically, they have to. Be, uh, they have to be Haribo gummy yeah, bears. Absolutely. Are there any other brands? <laughs> no, no. It's 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 Haribo or nothing. <laughs> right. All right. Final question of random misfire. Favorite car movie. Favorite car movie. Okay. Let's see. I'm gonna. Oh gosh. This this is a, this is a tough one. Um, I, I guess I'm I guess I'm gonna go with my gut because the when he said it, the first thing that came into my mind was bullet. Okay. Um, so I'm going to have to go with, I'm just gonna have to go with my first reaction because the first reaction is usually the right. most best accurate one. So I'm going to have to go with bullet. That iconic chase scene is, you know, just, it never gets old to me. Right. Uh, everything from the visuals to the sounds, especially, I mean, the, you know, the sounds, uh, are, are just, you don't get that in an EV. Oh yeah. You don't get that in EV. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the sounds are just absolutely intoxicating. Uh, the stunts are awesome. You know, the fact that Steve McQueen himself did a lot of the driving himself, you know, harkens back to a to a time that's past. I mean, right. we don't usually have, you know, the headline actors doing their own stunts anymore. But uh, Steve McQueen did back then. And I think that's awesome. That movie as a kid, you know, ignited a particular love for, uh, you know, the, the 67 to 68 Fastback uh, Mustang, which, you know, to this day remains one of my favorite car designs of all time. Um, you know, there've been a lot of great Mustangs through the years, but that 67, 68 fastback, hands down my favorite. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 they're such a, that chase scene is done with such a, you know, with such style and, you know, e you know, even, even if, you know, it's not the most realistic car chase. I mean, obviously, you know, seven hubcaps fly off the charger and there's only four wheels, but you know, who cares? I mean, you know, for, for visual entertainment value and visuals right. and sounds, I'm, I don't know. I can't beat that one. All right. Well, uh, I've got a couple more questions for you behind the paywall, but uh, that that does it for now. Uh, for our listeners, where, how can they find you? What would be relevant for our listeners uh, to see? Because I know you get press vehicles as well. Mm -hmm. How how would our listeners best follow what you do? <laughs> um, well, um, I'm on I'm on all the social media channels um, except TikTok. Haven't haven't uh, haven't gone there just yet. On uh, Twitter, you can find you can find me at uh, my handle. There is Ekimap. So that's E K I M A P. 
So it's uh, my first initial, last name, and AP for Auto Pacific. Okay. So ECMAP, E-K-I-M-A-P. On uh, Instagram, you can find me at Ed Kim Sees That. Uh, again, that's Ed Kim Sees That. And then uh, our company, if you work for a car company or a product planner or a, you know, work for a supplier or an, or an agency and, and, and you're interested in some of our services, uh, you can also find me at uh, www.autopacific.com. All right. Well, I thank you so much for coming on and talking. This has been brewing in my brain for a long time and just trying to find a, a good time to sit down and interview you. It seemed so perfect that you assumed this new role that uh, I had to reach out and say, come on, man. <laughs> well, I, re I really, really appreciate you having me on the show. I mean, this was a ton of fun. I, I mean, there's nothing... You know, there's nothing more fun for me than uh, blabbing cars with another car enthusiast. So, you know, I really thank you for uh, having me come on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. All right. So I, again, I am just incredibly grateful to get to speak to Ed and tap into his knowledge, his history, a little bit of what he does his job just sounds so much fun, like so much fun to me outside of what I'm doing. If I was not doing this, I would want to be doing that. And you can see why. Numbers are my thing. Cars are my thing. So to put the two together, it's why I like baseball so much. It's numbers and sports. So yeah, uh, he and I could have talked much longer about a great many things, but I am so grateful for him joining with me today. We didn't even touch on the thing that really actually brought us together in the first place. He and I are both members of a running group on Facebook for people in the automotive industry. And I will say, shout out, Ed, thank you so much. He is one of the most outspokenly positive and supporting people in said running group uh, that I, I just truly appreciate the camaraderie we've built there. Uh, he's always one of the first to comment on any of my runs. And let's face it, I'm not where I want to be but uh, he, his encouragement keeps me going. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. I'm incredibly grateful for uh, the connection that we have made and that he was able to come on to this week's episode of the podcast. That being said, you know where to find us, what, where to find what we're driving, what we're doing. We're on Facebook and Instagram, both at GT Garage Talk. And everything we do can be found at GTGarageTalk.com. Until next time, bye.